So a person should never drink alone. And I hope that uh, all of you out there are going to say L'chaim. This is going to be a little bit of a different kind of presentation. Book club is going to be, well, you're probably wondering, it was all my books. <laughs> I got no books today. I got one book. But today is going to be about the books and about Haytavis. And yeah, it's going to be a little bit, a little bit of a fabrengen. And there actually is somebody here in this room, so I'm not drinking alone. No, Alex, where's your l'chaim? L'chaim. L'chaim v'levracha. L'chaim. L'chaim, everybody. L'chaim. And good morning to those that are joining online. So let me begin by saying, Gachyamtiv, Afrelch and Hetevis to you all. And the purpose of today's presentation is to explain to you why I just said Gachyamtiv. Why today is a special day. A day that the Rebbe, and I quote from an edited Sicha, that the Rebbe said, Bevoi Yoim Zeh. When this day arrives, and this is the Rebbe speaking, in December of 1987, or maybe it was January of 88. I don't know the secular date offhand, but it was the fifth day of Tevis in the year Tavshim Ches, the first anniversary of Didan Notzach, of Hei Tevis. And the Rebbe said, As the anniversary of this day arrives one year later, And so it should be each and every year. And here we are 35 years later. The Rebbe said this is, should be, this day should be niskarim. This day should be mentioned. Val nasim. And the Rebbe emphasizes, it's like in italics, niskarim, that this is a day that should be remembered and it's a day that should engender action. The very same thing that happened the first time around, today on Hetevis. And the Rebbe said, and again I quote, Lihikova, Liyoim Sgula, that this day should be established as a day of great propition, and an eight ratzon, a time of divine grace, Bechol Hakosher, Linitzchonim, Shlahasvarim, to everything related to the victory of the books. And I want to talk about that. I want, to, I want to try to explain it. Let me give you a little bit of history. I know some of you know this. Maybe some of you don't. I can't make any assumptions. And in order for us to all to appreciate what, what's about to be shared, just a little bit of history is required. But first, L'chaim. So at the turn of the last century, everything changes. Everything changes. Commun the rise of, the, of communism, first of all, World War I, the displacement of the Jewish communities, the rise of communism. Modernity has taken, shall we say, full hold amongst the Jewish people, certainly those living in Eastern Europe, and many, many, many challenges have been engendered as a result. Of course, we all know that uh, the shtetl life that was at the time was in its, its final years. That shtetl would never be again. Jewish life, as it had flourished, would soon change forever. And the previous Rebbe begins to 
if you will, deal with the challenges of modernity and, and prepare the Hasidic movement to move forward into, into the new era. And at this time, libraries were in the domain of universities, other faith systems had central libraries, even Jewish people who were wooed by what we would call um, a secular way of life, not Torah mitzvahs, had begun to build and develop central libraries. There was no world-class library in the Torah world, in the observant world. And the Friedrich Rebbe begins to build a world-class library so that Torah, the Torah community, actually has a central repository for sacred texts, for manuscripts, even for artifacts. And so that in this way, the world of Hasidus, the world of piety, the world of observance, the world of Torah tradition is able to compete on the international stage. The Vridike Rebbe doesn't go anywhere without the crown jewels of the Lubavitch movement. And that, of course, is the Ksavim, the manuscripts. World War II explodes, and many of these books, of course, are displaced and lost, but many of them are rescued. The Friedrich Rebbe invests an enormous amount of energy, of creativity, of funding, to build and maintain this library. So it becomes a legacy thing. This is, this is something that the previous Rebbe built for, for the movement, really for the Jewish people. And so it was. And so it was. This is a library that was expanded, and the Rebbe, so to speak, received this legacy, this, in, this inheritance of chassidus, and the Rebbe continues to build and develop the library. An interesting vignette story that I heard from Rabbi Levi Bukit in Chicago. Many of the yeshiva students at the time were engaged or part of this project. They would find old manuscripts, old books, and they would bring it to 770 to add it to the Rebbe's library. And at that time, you're talking about the early 1960s, there were shoals that were going out of business. Neighborhoods were melting down, and, and sometimes books, enormous boxes of books, tiffs of books would, would come to the yeshiva. And the boys were searched through to see if there was anything unique or something different. And they found a manuscript. It, it seemed to be a manuscript of Hasidus. And uh, so they, they asked, he asked his father, a big Talmud Chacham, was Rosh Hashiva, and Tim Chatzmim, his father didn't know what it was. They brought it to the Rebbe's brother-in-law, Rabbi Shmayar Garari, he didn't know what it was either. But he said, you know, tonight I'm going to be entering the Rebbe's study. I'm going to meet with the Rebbe. So if you want, I can bring this manuscript to the Rebbe and ask the Rebbe what it is. And of course, this is a, you know, this made the boys very excited. They made a photocopy of it. And that evening, Rashag, as it was called, goes into the Rebbe's study. And the boys are waiting outside. And when Rashag comes out, he doesn't have the manuscript. And he says, to the boys the following. He says, the Rebbe looked at this manuscript and immediately knew that it was the handwriting of the previous Rebbe's uncle, the Rebbe Rashab's older brother. His name was Rebbe Zalman Aaron. And the Rebbe said, it is a manuscript of Rebbe Zalman Aaron in which he documents a Hasidic teaching of his father, the fourth Rebbe, the Rebbe Maharash, Rabbi Shmuel, but it's not written in the syntax of his father's delivery. It's written in the syntax of the way he understood the teaching from his father. And then the Rebbe said these words, 
Chassidus Hatabalabas. Chassidus is, so to speak, is, so to speak, owned. It's owned by the Rebbes. It's owned, it's owned by, ultimately, the agency of Lubavitch. Is Balangda. Chassidus Hatabalabas is Balangda. Chassidus has, so to speak, a, an agency, an, owner, an ownership. It belongs here. And of course, it became part of the Rebbe's library. The point is this. The point is it's very clear that there's a, a jurisdiction called Chassidus, a jurisdiction called Chabad. The jurisdiction is not a, it's not a personal jurisdiction. As the Rebetzin was asked about the library, the Rebetzin was asked, did your father own the Svarim? Were they his personal residuals? Or did they belong to the Chassidim? And without a hesitation, the Rebbe's wife, the Rebetzin, said, it belonged to the Chassidim because my father belonged to the Chassidim. In other words, a Rebbe is a person who becomes entirely committed, dedicated, devoted to a higher calling and cause. And as such, it wasn't, it wasn't the Rebbe's personal jurisdiction. There is no, it's almost as if they, the Rebbe sheds his own personal or private domain, and he becomes an embodiment of, of the movement of Chassidus, of Chassidim, and ultimately of Klal Yisro. So the, the history is that this library, for many, many years, was held in 770. And, and it was slowly manuscripts are being printed and deciphered. At a certain point in the late 1970s, an enormous volume of Svarim that had disappeared in, in World War II, in the midst of the Nazi inferno. Oh, the lights went out. Okay, you don't go anywhere. I'm just going to get those lights back on. <laughs> just give me a moment. All right. Or now we have light. I guess that's a good interruption and a good opportunity for another lechayim, 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 lechayim. So, in the in the smoke of the Nazi inferno. A, a large section of the previous Rebbe's library disappeared. And there's, it's a story in and of itself of how it was discovered and who discovered it. There was, there was multiple leads, but eventually it does come back home to 770, and the Rebbe was extremely pleased to see the Svar return to the rightful place. In the summer of 1985, a physical descendant of the Friedrich Rebbe makes the fateful decision to begin to steal books from the library. He feels that it's his rightful inheritance. And so, 35 years after the passing of the Friedrich Rebbe, he decides it's time for him now to go and dismember the library and take his portion, because in his view, the Rebbe lived and died and is He's gone. And if he's gone, then his residuals should now be divided by material or terrestrial ears. Of course, the question is, if that was so obvious and so clear, why'd you wait 35 years? And why were you coming in the middle of the night? And they noticed, they put cameras and they saw this, this man was coming in like a thief, stealing things in the middle of the night. Stealing valuable things, very valuable things, Selling them on, uh, you know, to art dealers. And then on Yud Beis Tammuz, 1985, at the Fabringen, the Rebbe makes this announcement. And these videos are available. You can watch them. You could hear the pain in the Rebbe's voice. The Rebbe uses terminology, I think, that is unmatched. And all of the repertoire of the Rebbe, of the course of 40 years, the kind of words that Rebbe used about about the Friedrich Rebbe, about his Rebbe, 
about, about the eternal life of the Rebbe, about how taking books from the library, the Rebbe said, as are tearing pieces of life, like, like tearing flesh off the Rebbe's continued existence in this world by extension of the library. They were called books like, like, like live ammunition that could blow up at any time. And the Rebbe clearly saw these books as being something very, very more than, than books, but this is the legacy of the previous Rebbe. It represents the eternal life of the Rebbe. And by, by dismembering Rahman al-Azlan, the library, it was like literally like dismembering the physical manifestation of the Friedrich Rebbe in this world. The, this uh, relative, unfortunately, was not a Torah observant Jew. It wasn't possible to resolve this in the normative ways that Torah Jews resolve things. And so it had to go to the law of the land. It had to go to, to, the, to the law enforcement. It had to go to the justice system. And of course, here's the problem. You know, will, will, will the justice system understand these mystical spiritual concepts that, that a Rebbe has eternal life and that his neshama continues to remain in this world even after his terrestrial passing. These are not new ideas, but these are Torah ideas. Very, very deep mystical Torah ideas. Torah ideas, I must add, that we don't understand in the same way we understand or appreciate that which is seen, touched, or tasted. It's, it's in the realm of the, the paranormal, it's in the realm of the super-rational. Now, I, I want to just like, add another detail. This is an important little detail. And the important detail is that as, as Torah Jews, we believe that earthly or physical phenomenon, especially when it comes to matters of great importance, to the Jewish people, be it on a material or spiritual level, are a reflection of a deeper truth. It's something more than meets the eye. A prime example of this is the way Hasidim view Yotes Kislev. The Alter Rebbe, the founder of the Chabad movement, had accepted upon himself in the year 1776, when the first Madar Aliyah was made to the land of Israel, led by Rebbe Menachem Mendel of Vitebsk, the eldest disciple of the Magid, and a group of Hasidim, and the Alter Rebbe was part of the group, and he wanted to move to the land of Israel. But he was persuaded to return to Eastern Europe because they said if there wouldn't be a brilliant and charismatic Torah leader like the Alter Rebbe in Eastern Europe, the Hasidic movement, which was still in its fledgling stages, would simply collapse. And so the Alter Rebbe agrees to return. He, he bows to the pressure from Reb Mendel and others. He returns to Eastern Europe, but not before taking upon himself the personal responsibility of funding the Jewish community that will live, that will be reestablished in the land of Israel. And I must tell you that Kolel Chabad, a charity founded by the Alter Rebbe himself that was presided over by each of the subsequent Rabbeim, the Rebbe had a pushka, a tzedakah box of Kolel Chabad on his desk. They all took personal responsibility, almost like a, an inherited responsibility for supporting the poor in Israel. And it is the oldest continuous charity supporting the poor in the Holy Land. And I, I believe it is today the largest charity supporting poor people, simply providing food and shelter for those who are needy in the land of Israel today. That's just a little factoid, fascinating little factoid. So the Alter Rebbe is incarcerated and the trumped up charges are that he is supporting the Ottoman Empire. The Sultan of Turkey is the archenemy of the Tsar of Russia. And at that time, the land of Israel, which was called Palestine, was a, an Ottoman province. It was under the rule of the Ottoman Empire, headquartered in Turkey. So sending money to a province of the Ottoman Empire as the land of Israel, the Holy Land was seen at the time, could easily be misrepresented as seeding rebellion against the Tsar himself. 
because the czar is an enemy of the sultan, and the sultan controls the Holy Land. So the Alter Rebbe is accused of high treason. And you didn't see the light of day when you were accused of high treason. That was, by every, by all accounts of the time, basically, a death sentence. But you had to go through due process, but there would be a death sentence. And Alter Rebbe was incarcerated, and he was interrogated, and there was a court case. And Alter Rebbe languished in prison for 53 days. But on Yutas Kislev, he was released. So we don't view this as, well, you know, there was trumped-up charges, there were some enemies of the movement, they tried to quash the Hasidic movement, they wanted to harm the Alter Rebbe, they figured that by eliminating the Alter Rebbe or having him killed by the Tsar, that would be, you know, a wonderful way for them to do away with the Hasidic movement. The Hasidic movement would die in its infancy, so to speak, on the birthing table, and it would have. They would have. They weren't wrong about this. Their assumption was probably, as they say, right on. And they didn't do it. Somebody else did it. They could say, our hands didn't shed this blood, and they believed that they were doing the right thing. And it doesn't work out that way. Right? Hashem runs the world, and Hashem decides that things should be different. But when the Alter Rebbe is in prison, on the 53rd day of his incarceration, he receives visitors from another world. And, and I have to tell you that uh, tzaddikim do not engage in hyperbole. And they don't use fantastical words or descriptions. The Alter Rebbe said that there was people who came into the prison cell with him. One he recognized was his Rebbe. It was the Magad of Mizritch's Yom Hilula yard site. And he recognized the Magad. He didn't recognize the other person. The Alter Rebbe only saw the Baal Shem Tev twice when he was a very, very small child and didn't remember, wasn't shown the face of the Baal Shem Tev and never got to know the Baal Shem Tev, so to speak. So he, this is a terrestrial thing. He's seeing the Baal Shem Tev. He doesn't recognize him. He gets introduced to the Baal Shem Tev. And, that they, and they want the Alter Rebbe to say chassidus. And, and the Alter Rebbe asks them, what, what is really going on here? Like, why is this actually happening? And the response that he gets is that there's a kitruk. There's a, a decree against what you're doing. You're making the mystical secrets of Torah available to everybody, which of course it is. Through the teachings and the doctrines of Chabad Hasidus, deep mystical spiritual ideas can be understood by anybody today. But that had never been the case before. And the Alter Rebbe says, so will I leave here? Or is this kitrog, this decree, or this heavenly obstacle going to wash over and liberate me? And they, and they say to the Alter Rebbe, you will leave today. And he asks, so do I stop? And they say, no. No. Once you start it, there's no turning back. In other words, the story of Yutes Kislev, whilst it is a story of drama and intrigue, a story of espionage and, 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 and criminal activity and falsified accusations, and it's all of these things, but actually this is just a symptom. The ultimate cause is that there's heavenly opposition. So the heavenly opposition results in earthly opposition. And that's how we view Yutas Kislev. We view it as the day that the Hasidic movement is vindicated. So here, there's a challenge to the concept, to the ideal or idea, if you will, of the eternity of a Rebbe. Is a Rebbe just a tzaddik, just a regular person who lives and dies, and then, you know, there's memories maybe a photo album, perhaps is some manuscripts? Or does the Rebbe's spirit continue to live on? Are the words of the Zohar true? The Zohar says, Tzadikah the Ispater, a tzaddik who passes on, is found in all worlds, more so than during his terrestrial lifetime. And Alter Rebbe famously asks, like, Tinach we talk about higher worlds, but in this world? Like, how does that work? And Alter Rebbe explains that. And I, I actually have, there's recorded classes on Igeris Chavzayin, which are found on this channel, and you can go watch it. But the point I want to make is this. this. This challenge is not about a library. This challenge is about how we view a Rebbe's life. Does a Rebbe continue to live on? Does a Rebbe, is, does, does, does a Rebbe so to speak, move beyond just being a person and become an embodiment of, of a klal, of a movement, of a pl plurality of the Jewish people. 
That's really the question. And, and when the Rebbe's physical or terrestrial lifetime ends, do we say Yaakov Lomais and Father Jacob lives on? Do we say that Moshe Rabbeinu's spirit is still amongst us, that he lives? Do we say Chaye Sarah, that the Parsha, that the Torah portion that describes the death and the burial of Sarah is actually called the life of Sarah because Sarah's movement, her family, continues to develop as Yitzchak marries Rivka and then brings children into the world. And of course, the son Yaakov founds the nation we call Israel, the house of Jacob today. So is, is, is this Torah idea something which is, is real? Do we actually believe in it or do we pay lip service to it? That's the question. That's the question. And specifically, the Rebbeim of Chabad and the way they dedicated and devoted themselves not only to minister to their acolytes, to their disciples and their families, but rather the Rebbe's of Chabad, especially our Rebbe. But you see this with the Rebbeim. They devoted themselves to the welfare of Am Yisrael. When there was Russian soldiers in the Russo-Japanese War, who was sending matzah? The Rebbe Rashab was sending matzah to them. When there were pogroms across Tsarist Russia, who was meeting with groups of defense leagues, Jewish defense leagues? The Rebbe Maharash was meeting with them. When there was the Bayless trial, who was involved knee-deep and beyond? The Rebbe Rashab. The Rebbeim took responsibility for Am Yisrael. So does a Rebbe live and then just pass on? Or does the Rebbe have a continued presence? And that the movement represents who and what the Rebbe is? Of course, I'm asking this question rhetorically today. It's pretty obvious. It's not a secret that the Rebbe hasn't terrestrially been here since 1994. And yet, not only has the Chabad Lubavitch movement not imploded or collapsed or fallen apart, but it has grown exponentially, and nobody could have predicted this. So, so this was the question. This is the question. And had Hey Tavis not happened, had we not had this court ruling, the reality of the world would be very different today. That's abundantly clear to me. And here, and here I want to address the issue of the courts before I go on to the books. So there's this concept called a dwelling place here in our world. And that means, as the Medrash Tanchuma puts it, and Al-Tarebbe explains this in great length in Sefer Tanya Kaddish, in the book of Tanya, that Kishem Shiyesh Yenim, God says, just as I have a dwelling place. A dwelling place means that God is known, so to speak, by the heavenly creatures. They know and appreciate the presence of God. So too, Nisava, Kaddish Baruch Hu, God desired that he should have a dira Now, our world is the world that's called the lowest world, not because there's a spatial issue, not because when you go to the heavens or break the atmosphere, you're any closer to God. <laughs> Hashemayim, Shemayim la Hashem does not mean that when you're in outer space, ah, now you're with God. When we say that somebody is in heaven, we don't mean that there are right now in orbit around Saturn. That's obviously ridiculous. It's a, it's a euphemism. Heaven becomes a representation of a reality that is beyond us. So we say, I raise my eyes to the heavens. We're not literally looking at clouds and saying God you know, is hiding on the moon or something. That's, that's, that's simple foolishness. It's, that's it's idiocy. <laughs> I remember. I remember when the first space shuttle blew up. So I was in the school called Beth Jacob in Philadelphia. And we had a science teacher. She was an observant woman. I don't know how, what, how good of a science teacher she was, but... Uh, her understanding of, of, of faith principles was certainly extremely dim, despite the fact that she was observant. So they asked her about this, this space shuttle. I think it was a woman named Beth Myerson. I think she was Jewish. She was on that shuttle. It was a very traumatic thing for us as kids. And I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a kid. Okay? I think I'm like 11 years old. And she says, well, you know, 
it says, Hashomayim Shomayim Lahashem Vahaaretz Nasan Levnei Adam. It says in Psalms that the heavens are for God, and He gave the terrestrial world <laughs> to people. So when people are invading God's territory, this is what happens. And I'm thinking, like, what is she talking about? What, what kind of stupidity is that? Like, when you're in a spaceship, you invade God's territory? At 11 years old, I knew that this woman was totally off mark, and what she was saying was absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, as I got a little older and just a tad bit wiser, I realized actually how incredibly foolish this woman was. What a foolish and silly statement it is. So, so when we talk about heaven, talk about the heavenly reality, it's a euphemism. Here's a metaphor that might help you understand this. So uh, what scientists call a black hole or negative energy today, which isn't just the absence of light. Like we say darkness is the absence of light. In our terrestrial world, in our atmosphere, darkness is the absence of light. But there is a positive kind of darkness. It's not just the absence of light, but it's the lack of possibility for photons to exist. It's the nuclear physics is entirely different. So much so that photons are actually crushed and swallowed by what we call a black hole. And scientists came as close, I suppose, as we could to observing a black hole where seeing light swallowed. It looked almost like a whirlpool. There were pictures a couple of years ago that came out. It looked like, like, like you know, the water going out at the, at the, end, the bottom of the bathtub, like a whirlpool. And you saw like the light like whirlpooling into this place where everything's collapsed, where that which takes up thousands of square kilometers, for example, would be in the, in the size of a, of a needle, the tip of a needle, because the nuclear physics changes and everything is crushed and collapses in ways that are almost unfathomable, at least to me. So, so in the black hole, there can be no light. And, and, and to me, that's like a metaphor for our world. Our world is a world where godliness, the presence of the Creator, simply can't be revealed. We can't see God. Nobody can see God. Scientists came across evidence of what they would call the God particle, the Hogg's Bigson particle, because they saw a certain sequence. It's all just the telltale things that there's something at play here. That it isn't just the terrestrial material or quantum physics that accidentally structured itself as so, but rather there's a creator involved. We can't see this in this world. And we believe that Hashem, God, wants to be known and seen in this world and that He is known and seen, not literally in the way we see things now, but God's presence is here in a very profound way, although we can't see it. So we don't see God's presence, but His presence is here. You don't see radio waves either. But at least you can hear radio waves. You can see evidence of it. You, don't, you may not see contagium. You may not see particles of bacteria. They're here, even though it will take up physical space. So God is here. The difference is the various bacteria and germs can actually cause you to become very sick. So people are wearing masks or doing things to distance because they don't have to believe it. They know it whether it's by virtue of looking under a microscope or by seeing the symptoms. Yet, they know that there are radio waves, even though they can't see the radio waves because you can hear the radio waves. At least today you can. So we have a way of deciphering or seeing or, if you will, downloading this into what we would call a form of actuality, that which can not be touched, that which can't be seen but can be heard. But divinity or godliness we don't get to see. We don't get to see. Yet, we believe that every single time a person studies Torah, every single time we perform a mitzvah, we are connecting to God in a meaningful way. And godliness becomes more present in our reality. And that the result, sum total, pardon me, the sum total result of all the mitzvahs we perform and of all the Torah we study eventually is going to lead us to a point where is this paradigm shift. Everything changes. And suddenly we can see the presence of God. It says, I in, I in you. We'll see God eye to eye. 
obviously God doesn't have eyes. We're going to see the presence of God. And until then, until then, it's our job to make the presence of God known. So, for example, we're coming from Hanukkah, where we, where we kindled Hanukkah menorahs. And the concept was parsuminiso. We need to make the message public. We need to send it out there. People should know about this. Who? All kinds of people. There was a, the, the Talmud queries, when can you light a menorah? Until when? And, and talks about the lowest dregs, the rebellious elements of society who would meet at night. The, the Tarmudoi, the Tarmodians are called, or from people from Palmyra who would sell a certain kind of wood. But, but they, they, it was more than just a question of them selling the last bit of wood and people going at it at night. It's understood to be an, a seditious, uh, a rebellious element of society. And they also have to hear about the message and the miracle of Hanukkah. So we utilize a variety of mediums to broadcast the message. And it's important to God. It's important to God what people say, even scoffers. I once taught a whole class about this idea that Yitzchak looked exactly like Avram because people were saying, you know, Sarah, she got pregnant from somebody else. Yeah, I mean, it's like she was with Avram for decades and nothing happened, and then she spent one night at the palace, and all of a sudden she's pregnant. It's not Avram's child. So although Yitzchak has his mother's personality and one's persona, is personified on a, on, your, on a person's face. As it says in the Talmud, Chachmas Adam of the wisdom of a person illuminates the face. There's a wise face. There's a, there's a foolish face. There can be a, a mean or evil face, a kind face. The face invariably will reflect personality traits. Yitzchak and Avraham Avinu, despite being father and son, couldn't have been more different in their temperament. Yitzchak personifying Gvura, extreme discipline, much like his mother Sarah, and Avraham personifying chesed, extraordinary benevolence. The two opposites. Two extreme edges of the, uh, or, or poles. And yet, Yitzchak looks exactly like Avraham. Why? It's a miracle. It's a miracle that Hashem makes because people shouldn't say. The scoffers shouldn't be able to say what they're saying. It's important to God that the world recognizes the truth, the veracity, of our tradition. And there are many, many examples of this. We were required to do things so that people, so to speak, won't say. The world won't say, so that the world will know. A Kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name, which is considered to be an act of exceptional holiness, is when the world recognizes the beauty and the pageantry of Torah and of, and of Yiddishkeit and of faith. So, so this is like a, a challenge to a spiritual concept, a very important Torah spiritual concept of tzaddikim's eternal life. But the question is, is the world prepared to recognize that? And the mightiest country in the world is not Canada, although I live here and I'm very grateful to live in Canada and to enjoy its freedoms and its opportunities, but the fact remains that the world's superpower, really sole superpower, unless China will soon replace the United States' position, but certainly then, decades ago, the world's emerging singular superpower was the United States of America. In 1987, the Soviet Union was on the verge of collapsing, and America's fortunes were soaring. So you have a federal judge who's not Jewish, Charles Sifton, and this federal judge, in the end, representing the weight of the United States justice system, which is, if you will, the highest office in the land, the president, although he has an executive a, a branch of power, unlike a prime minister in our country, but the president, he can appoint justices to the Supreme Court, but he cannot control the Supreme Court. Of course, that was Washington's way of ensuring that nobody would ever have absolute power. So there are three branches of the power of the United States of America. There's, there's the, the office of the president, the executive branch of power. There's the legislative body, the House of Congress that comprises Congress and the Senate. And then there's the judicial house. And it is a, an interplay between the legislative house and the executive branch so the executive branch and the legislative branch work together 
to appoint the judge, but once a judge is appointed, it's a lifetime appointment, and they are beholden to no one. They can't be. It represents the intelligentsia, the, 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 the idea of the philosophy, the notion of, of the, the law of the land, upholding law, the highest ideal. And the question is, will a federal court be able to recognize a Torah truth? Or will they take the side of, uh, you know, what they call a charity case? Doesn't, the optics aren't good when it's like a movement against an individual. Individual is a blood relative. He says, like, it's a, you know, it's my, it's my inheritance. I just want to pay my bills. Like it's, it's all about me. So there was a tremendous amount of concern. And the Rebbe went to the Ohel every day. Every day. It was in his late 80s. The Rebbe was fasting on those days. Freezing winter days. Spent the entire day in prayer throughout that court case. Each day of the court case. The court case begins on Yutes Kislev. And this was understood by all of us to be an, a very ominous thing. An attack on the eternity of the, of the Rebbe's life. On the Rebbe himself. And on Heitavis. Hashem ordains that a judgment is released. And it's unequivocal. It's unequivocal. The United States justice system recognizes the veracity of this Torah concept. It's a, it's a major step in Dirbetartenim. Yes, we cannot see, feel, and touch these concepts, but they are true. They are recognized in the form of law and possession, and jurisdiction, and ownership. It's very meaningful. And that's the way we saw, and that's the way we understood Didan Natsach, as it's called, which means we are victorious, representing the victory of all things holy. Victory of Torah. To Torah ideals and ideas are recognized, are embraced by what we would call the secular world. L'chaim, by the way. So, what does this have to do with books? There's, a, there's a, a quote from the Rebbe. I think there was something the Rebbe said to his brother-in-law. Rabbi Shmar Yogarari, he said to him, this is not about books. This is about the idea of, of a Rebbe. This is about the idea of what's called in, Yiddish, in, in Yiddish, the benkel, the position. It's not about books. The books were a technical, it would seem, a technical expression of this challenge. On the day of Heitavis, the Rebbe Davin Mincha downstairs in the big show, and he spoke about Heitavis, and he, there was no malice, no angst, no frustration, no gloating. The Rebbe spoke invoking the words of Yosef HaTzadik, of the righteous Joseph, who after revealing himself to his brothers, and that was the Chumash we were studying that, that very day, he said to them, don't feel bad about what happened. Well, you'll remember that Yosef's brothers sold him as a slave after trying to kill him. There was a, he said to them, don't feel bad. This is not you. This is, this, there's, a, there's higher forces at play. This was all ordained from God, and there's a purpose to it. I was sent to sustain the family and ultimately the nation. And the Rebbe said that this entire challenge has to be seen as, not as, as, as a personal challenge or just something of, you know, there was a painful situation, but rather this is, a stepping stone. This has to be a catalyst for renewed, energized efforts in spreading the message and word of Torah. The Rebbe didn't talk about books even. At least not to the best of my recollection. I was there. This is the Rebbe talked about activism and, 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 and doing more and being more inspired. And in the days that followed, the Rebbe spoke about this being a tremendous eight ratzon. Two days later, on the 7th of Tavis, the Rebbe said that he would be going to the Ohel and that anybody could ask for whatever they wanted. And he would bring all the letters there. And all kinds of people asked for all kinds of outlandish things that 
there are many amazing stories of how, you know, people's prayers were answered. There was one fellow I know who wrote like a 20-page letter on a, on, a, on a plane flying in from Australia, and, and he didn't have two wooden nickels, so to speak, to rub together. And amongst the things he asked for was for wealth, and he became phenomenally wealthy afterwards. And so there were like amazing things that happened. And, and the, the entire thrust of focus wasn't on, on books, if you will. The books were just a technical element. And there's a lot to say, a lot to say about what happened during that first year. And the books finally retu- are returned on Beis Kislev, and there was a lot to say about that. And, and actually, people thought that the Rebbe wanted to downplay. And not, you know, it's, it was, it was a painful story, and, and, and the story's over, and let's just, let's just try to forget about it. That's what a lot of people thought. They thought this would be the approach. So, hey, Tavis, on the first anniversary of Didan Notzach, the Rebbe speaks at the Fabrengen, I remember this very vividly, but the amazing thing for us is it wasn't only written by the manichim, by the human tape recorder, so to speak, who were present at the Fabrengen, they never edited the Sikha. So, so this is like, you know, every word here is it's the real deal. And the Rebbe begins the Fabrengen by saying that it's already been announced with great publicity by Evangel Pearson, and the Rebbe invokes the Hanukkah maxim of Parsume Nisa, publicizing the miracle. And he says, we're coming with just the Shabbos after Hanukkah. And this is the completion then of, of the Hanukkah energy, because that's what the final the Shabbat that elevates all the, the events or observances of the days of the week prior. And Hanukkah is emblematic of really Yiddishkeit itself, Torah mitzvahs itself, because the emblem of Hanukkah is the concept of light. And one could argue that light is emblematic of Judaism itself, as it says, Ner mitzvah and Torah or. A mitzvah is a lamp and Torah is light. So it has to be in a way of Hanukkah, Hanukkah lamps. The said this is not a private thing, it's a very public thing. And that it has to be announced, and has to be public, and this is why I'm, I'm taking the time to to share this now, to, to spend time together with you, because this is a public thing. It's not a private thing. It's not something we try to sweep under the carpet. Well, it was a bad relative. Stuff happened. And no, no, no. This is a, an important day. This is a day that you and I can utilize as a springboard to choose to live lives that are uplifted, lives that are mission-focused, lives that are filled with a sense of purpose, and lives that are punctuated with holiness and sanctity. This is a great day to resolve to move forward in the development of all those things. So the Rebbe says that we're speaking here about a library. And this is, he says, it's the Dan Natsach. And he calls it, and, and I believe it was the first time he said this, and it's here in, in the edited Hebrew version, Hanitzachin Shalasvarim, the victory of the books. Just a just a you know, regular person, but I, I would have said it was the, was the victory of Hasidus, victory of the Rebbe. The Rebbe said, no, it was the victory of books. It's a books victory. But the books are passive players. <laughs> the books don't do anything. I mean, the victory of the books. What, what does that mean? And as it says in the footnote of the Sikha, that if you'll, that the, you look in the various talks that the Rebbe delivered around these days, until the, that first week until Yud Beis Tevis, you'll see there was all kinds of lessons from the weekly Torah portion, but the Rebbe doesn't talk about books, so to speak, really. And here the Rebbe calls Hey Tevis the Nitzachan of the Svarim. Okay, so it's a Nitzachan of the Svarim. So what does that mean even? And he begins to talk about the library and he gives it goes a very, a very quick synopsis of some of the history that I mentioned. And he says that the various challenges represent a new vista, the opening of a a new horizon, new new possibilities now. And he says, therefore, to understand what this day is, we have to go and ask the books. Uh, I quote, 
If you want to know how we should celebrate the victory of the books, so then Didan, Didan Natsach is a Midrashic term that means victory is ours. Didan, he says, the Hasfarim, the Rebbe says in italics, Didan, ours is not ours. It's not, it's not Hasidim, it's not the movement, it's not Yiddishkeit. Ours is the Sfarim. Natsach, the Sfarim. So ask the Sfarim themselves. In other words, you have to look and you have to analyze. And then to do what they say, to follow their instruction. And the Rebbe begins to talk about the first book, you know, where the people are book. The first book is the Sefer Torah. And, and he talks about the Sefer Torah and he talks about the Oral Torah and how the Oral Torah eventually is committed to writing and it becomes not canonized but formalized in the body of Mishnah. And eventually Rambam Maimonides brings all the rulings of Torah together under one roof and he writes this volume called Mishnah Torah, restatement of the Oral Torah in written form, until we get down to what we call the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law. And the Rebbe takes this in a very interesting direction. He says there's a mitzvah to write a Sefer Torah. It's a mitzvah for every single one of us. Incidentally, as the Rebbe once noted on a different occasion, it's a mitzvah that's incumbent on every individual, yet there is hardly individuals who actually fulfill this mitzvah. It's a strange thing. It's the last mitzvah of the Torah, the climax of the Torah, and it's like an impossible mitzvah. Moshe Rabbeinu says, on the last day of his life, he says, you must know that this Torah, this mitzvah, this Yiddishkeit business, if you will, is within reach. It's very, very much within reach. The entire book of Tanya is written to show how it's not only in reach beficha ubelvavcha, not only not only asotcha, not only to do, and not only beficha, not only can you talk the talk and walk the walk. It's bilvavcha that you can actually affect inner emotional change, which is what the Hasidic movement comes along to enrich us with by teaching mystical secrets that will eventually stimulate real emotional change. So. The whole essence or emphasis of Moshe Rabbeinu's concluding words are, we can do this. Everybody can do it. It is not beyond the purview or reach of each person. And yet, the last mitzvah is a mitzvah that almost nobody can do. How many scribes are there? How many people can actually write a whole Sefer Torah? Precious few. How do we do this mitzvah then? Now, the answer is that the Gemara tells us that if a person's magiyah, if he fixes or perfects even one letter in a Sefer Torah, it's as if he wrote the whole Torah because a Torah missing a single letter isn't the kosher Torah. So what, ha- what will happen is that the end of the Sefer Torah, or sometimes the beginning, will have letters that are stenciled and the letters are filled in by people and the, because when you're filling in a letter of a Torah, it's like you did the mitzvah. So the Rebbe said it's a mitzvah <laughs> almost nobody can do. And a mitzvah that requires mass participation. Most people can't even afford to buy even a Sefer Torah or hire somebody to write a Torah. Most people don't have like a year's salary for somebody waiting around to be distributed. And the Rebbe said something incredible. He said that the mitzvah emphasizes the need for us to pool our resources, the need for us to come together as a nation. It's actually not about us as individuals that we're in this together. And we can only fulfill this mitzvah together, a mitzvah that unites us. At any rate, the Rebbe says that the Rosh, a halachist, a great leader of the Jewish people on par with Maimonides, Rambam himself, who wrote, restated the, the, the Talmud in halachic form, and this is one of the three foundations of the Code of Jewish Law, Rambam, Rabbeinu Asher, Rosh, and the Alphas, the Rif. So the Rosh says in Halachas Katanas, the minor Halachas, in the beginning of Laws of Sefer Torah, that he says that the mitzvah of writing a Sefer Torah was primarily applicable in the early generations. They would write a Torah and they would use the Torah to study from it. He said, but in today's day and age, 
Chakos and Sefer Torah, that we write a Sefer Torah. However, we place it in the Holy Ark, in the synagogue, and we only use the Sefer Torah not to study from a Sefer Torah, but rather to read from the Sefer Torah on appointed times. So he says, the Rosh says it's a mitzvah. Today would be a mitzvah for people to write the Chumash so they can study the actual Bible. It will be a mitzvah for them to write the Mishnah, which is the original body, the formalized body of the oral Torah in legal prose, in, in, in the form of halacha. And the Gemara, which expounds and develops that. And then the commentaries on that, the Pirushah, which were available at the time of the Rosh. And he says that's the mitzvah. Because the purpose of this mitzvah is that you write this proverbial song and the lambda, you have to teach it, you have to learn it. But we're not learning from a Sefer Torah. So the Rebbe says the point is to learn it, the Rosh says. The point is to learn it. And therefore it's a mitzvah to write the oral Torah today. And the Rebbe says today nobody has to write the Chumash. Nobody has to write a Mishnah. Nobody has to write a Gemara. Today this is all printed. We have the printing press. So the Rebbe says perhaps we could say that just as the Rosh explained in his day that the mitzvah now is primarily not the writing of a Sefer Torah, but the writing of the oral traditions, that in today's day and age, this mitzvah would be primarily accomplished by purchasing books, by owning books, by creating a library. And the Rebbe goes on to contrast books and the Sefer Torah. And he says they're, they're so different in so many ways. He says the the time of the Torah being read. There are formal times, Mondays and Thursdays, or Rosh Chodesh, a fast day, Shabbat, of course. There are times, appointed times, that the Torah is read. But books should always be read. We're supposed to study Torah day and night. The way a Torah scroll is handled with the greatest of reverence. Takes, the ark is open, everybody rises. We don't touch the parchment of the Torah scroll. We treat it with, with the greatest of dignity. We hold the Sefer Torah in the highest of esteem. Wrapping it in velvet and crowning it with gold and silver. And yet, despite the fact that books should be nicely bound, the book is yellowed. The book is used so much so that eventually, if we keep using a book, the binding does start to fray. And the Rebbe says, that's a good thing. It means the books are used. Books should not be in pristine shape. They shouldn't be left on the shelf. Books should be used. They should be used to the point that they're falling apart. When a person learns in a safer, they get into the book. And you can see it. It's so different than the Sefer Torah. And the Rebbe goes on to illustrate many differences between the Sefer Torah and between Sifrei Kodesh, holy books, and despite their differences, the Rebbe sees it as essentially two halves of a whole. And the Rebbe elaborates here in the Sicha, and then he just, in the end, finishes off by telling us that all of this has to lead to action. This is a day that has to result in more assiduous study, greater devotion to the books. And says that's what he called the Evan Habaychen. This would be the barometer, the telltale sign of whether or not we take this day seriously or not, as if we're going to be studying more Torah and using more books. So, so how did this happen? How did I become by the books? What, does he, what even does it mean? You know, the Rebbe notes over here, and he uses verbiage, which is um, kind of Hanukkah-like in nature. He says, with regard to Hanukkah, it says, Lashana Haba Kavum. They established the Yom Tov of Hanukkah a year later. It's true in the Al Hanisim prayer, we don't hear about the miraculous oil. It's dynamic. We're talking about what happened. They, they fought the wars, they capture, clean, refurbish the temple, and they light it up. Hiliko Neiris Pechatzis Kachecha, as it taught last week, they lit up the temple. Not just the, not the menorahs, I'm even talking about the menorah. The whole temple was lit up. 
light, the victory of light. They saw there's a victory of light. But, but the Gemara comes along and says, so my Hanukkah. Rashi says, which miracle was, were they commemorating? Ezenes Kavum. But the way the Rambam learns it, as, as I shared with you from Lakut uh, in the, in the 10th volume, the, Rebbe, the way the Rebbe explains the words of the Ramah, the Ramah was be saying, so, so how did the menorah become so prominent? What is it about the menorah that became the iconic sign or symbol of Hanukkah? And, and so the Gemara tells the story about the menorah, but it doesn't mean that that's all Hanukkah represents or celebrates. And it was a year later that the sages, in their inspired vision and wisdom came to this conclusion that yes, this is going to become the paradigm. This is going to become the, the, the iconic expression of the celebration of Hanukkah. So it seems that a year later, a year after Hetavis, the Rebbe said, okay, so, so what is really the essence of this day? And the essence of a day becomes books. But books is not the that wasn't the essence of, of this battle, if you will, at least not the way I explained it to you, and I don't think I'm wrong. But the Rebbe said, yes, it is Didan Natsach of the Asfarim. So what happens here? So I don't, listen, what, what, what do I know? But I, this is what it seems to me. It seems to me, firstly, that the Rebbe is speaking about the Sefer Torah, which is not, so to speak, used in the same fashion as books are, but that they, they too represent the completion of something. It seems to me that there's the library, like a Sefer Torah. It's a place that has to be kept and it's used at specific times and with the greatest of care. And those books should not be casually handled. They're valuable, priceless manuscripts and books. And they have to be held in the greatest respect like a Sefer Torah. That becomes the iconic representation of the Rebbe's legacy. But then there's the books, there's my library and your library. And the Rebbe lives on in his books. The life of a Rebbe is to be found in his Torah teachings, in, in the books, in the idea of this national repository, this national library, this world-class library. As the Rebbe says in the Sikha, a sifriya b'knei mido ilami, a library on a global scale. And then there's the other half of that, the other half of souls with books and a library that represents the continued life of the Rebbe is that the Rebbe's library, his library of Torah teaching and the library of Torah teachings of our sages who continue to live on with us, they live on in their books. And when you own these books and use these books, then these Torah sages continue to live on. As it says, when we read and study and verbalize the words of the sages, their lips, it says, literally murmur in the ground. They, 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 are, they are granted life. So when we're talking Torah teachings, it, it's, an, it's, an, it's an animation, a physical animation of the Neshama's presence. So the books become the extension of the Rebbe's life. The Rebbe, the, Rebbe, the Rebbe launched mitzvah campaigns and activism and a whole new way to look at so many different things and transformed Jewish and really spiritual life across the world. But the essence of the Rebbe is to be found in his Torah teaching. And when we study the Rebbe's Torah teaching, when we study Torah in general, that's how we connect to Hashem and that's how we connect to tzaddikim, who are Hashem's messengers. So Hetavis really is about the books. So today's a day that you should, I should, we should purchase more books, expand our own personal and own community libraries. And today's a day to focus on what the books represent and bring for us. So that's my little offering, my little fabring for this morning. I hope that uh, you found this insightful, informative, maybe a little uplifting. And the most important thing is that, as, as the Rebbe said in that sicha, that it should lead to action. It should lead to action that we should all promise ourselves and commit to Hashem Yisbarach. That in the days ahead, and this will flow into weeks and hopefully months of heightened intensified commitment to study the books, to read 
and study and share the Torah ideas from the books. I'm a booky guy, you know, I like, I like to read from the books. People say, why do you read from the books? I'm from the books, because the books is where the righteous live on, where Torah teachers continue to resonate in this world from. And hopefully, as we continue to expand our own libraries, and as we study with greater fervor and greater commitment and greater devotion, this will bring about the transformation of the world that we're all waiting for, a time in which the entire world will recognize and know the presence of Hashem Yisbarach with the coming of Mashiach Tzedkenu, Bimheira, Ubiyameinu Amen, L'chaim, Gutyamtif, and let us put the inspiration into action. L'chaim. Of course, in today's day and age, we have the opportunity to use the internet to share the messages of the books. And uh, you can even have books on your iPad with Kindle, but I still think you should have actual books. It's uh, scientifically proven that homes in which there are actual books are homes in which there's more reading that happens. And that more reading means more wisdom. And if it's total wisdom, it means real feelings and most importantly, real actions. Homes should be filled with Torah books, and filled is not a physical thing, but the presence of the books should be extremely prominent and obvious when you walk into a Yiddish home. And when we have homes that exude a message of Sifri Kedish, of books, not just holiness found in a shul or a yeshiva or an Aron Kodesh, but holiness found on our shelves and in our homes, that accelerates the process of transforming the world into Hashem's Dira B'Tachtenim. At any rate, as I said, thank you for joining. Um, if you like this, please, you know, just let me know. Like it and share it. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. I'm grateful for your participation and I look forward to continue to share words of Torah teaching and inspiration Be'ezrat Hashem in the days and months ahead. Have a wonderful day, and thanks for joining.